The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 21st, 2019. On this week's show, Hang Up panelist Emeritus Mike Pesca will be here to discuss the cruelty, the depravity, and the Brady of the NFL's Conference Championship Weekend. ESPN's Steve Fainaru will join us to talk about his story on the collapsing football insurance market and whether said collapse will imperil the sport. And finally, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer will help us assess Major League Baseball's ice-cold free agent market as superstars Manny Machado and Bryce Harper remain unsigned less than a month before spring training commences. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Got a text from uh, Stefan the other day about how uh, the Duke campus, Shashevskyville, in particular, was what was the exact quote? Not as bad as it as it seemed. I think I said it wasn't Satan's lair. <laughs> Where in the which circle was it? Probably third or fourth. I don't know. Shashevskyville was kind of. We were there. I was there with my daughter. We were playing in Scrabble tournament. We were also looking at colleges because she is of that age now. Um, and we stumbled toward Cameron, and Shashevskyville was in full force because they make these kids sit outside for a month. Like literally a fucking month sleeping in tents to get tickets for the UNC game. Weren't they playing? They were playing Virginia on Saturday. Yeah, well, that so was the- a separate line. <laughs> there were two lines at Shashevsky. So wait, you had to be in the UNC line and that meant you couldn't go to the UVA game? No, you could be in both. So it's like they have these giant tents, like 12 person tents. Yeah. And there are random spot checks where. All ten, I think. Is it the same guy who randomly to be there? Is it the same guy who's randomly testing Eric Reed's urine? (laughs) Possibly. Uh, Seems like that would be there. There would be some economies of scale there. Well, congratulations for becoming a dookie. Shut up. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to name drop. I don't want to name drop. But I was texting also with Anson Dorrance, the head soccer coach at UNC, because we also visited UNC. And I told him we were going to Duke. And he said that we tell our our recruits that if you hate your parents, you should go to Duke because they'll be paying for it for the rest of their lives. If you hate your parents. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. Good line. Good line. Yeah. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Before we get to our conversation with Steve Fainaru about football and insurance, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, We'll be talking about the Australian Open, where Stefan's favorite player is doing quite well. Stefanos, my namesake. Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas. I'm very excited about Tsitsipas. My favorite player, Francis Tiafo. He lost. But we will find common ground somewhere in this conversation. Uh, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
On Sunday in New Orleans, with less than two minutes to go in the NFC Championship game, Los Angeles Rams cornerback Nickel Roby Coleman, by his own admission, interfered with Saints receiver Tommy Lee Lewis. A direct quote after the game from Roby Coleman, hell yeah, that was P.I. Love, love is enthusiasm for the P.I. That call, if made would have given the Saints a first down and the ability to run the clock down to almost zero before kicking a tie-breaking field goal. To put it in numerical terms, according to ESPN's Brian Burke, uh, that call, again, if made, would have given the Saints a 98% chance to go to the Super Bowl. But the call was not made and the Rams tied the game in regulation, then won it in overtime after intercepting Drew Brees and getting a 57-yard game-winning field goal from Greg the Leg Zerline. Uh, about two minutes after the game, Saints coach Sean Payton said he'd already fielded a call from the league office saying that they'd screwed up. He was also emotionally astute enough to say that the team would probably never get over it. A day later, after taking some time to cool off and think things through dispassionately, my mother told me on the phone that she'd heard that the outcome of the game might be overturned and also that two of the officials were from Los Angeles. Joining us now is our, <laughs> is our great friend... And the ruple in our thruple, Mike Pasca of The Jest. What do you have to say to my mother, Mike? Well, being from Los Angeles probably proves they're totally uninterested in the Rams. <laughs> I so actually if, told her the same thing. <laughs> if anything, that is exculpatory uh, evidence. Okay, so you started with that play. Really, 98%? Are we sure that the Saints wouldn't uh, try to run into the line whereby the very astute Rams defense would let them in and then there'd be a last-minute drive to tie the score with a touchdown? Yeah, it was a bad call and it would have given them a first down. I question the 98%. But, you know... Why did, we invite this, why did we invite this guy again? What's, <laughs> who is this? Stefan, who is this guy? I don't know. Where'd you find you really him? Think, do you really think for sure that Peyton, uh, Sean Payton would have essentially taken two knees? Oh, he would have taken two oh, knees. Yeah, he yeah, said he would have sure. He wouldn't try knees. to score a touchdown. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Okay. Yeah. And also yeah, McVay. Because a lot of NFL lot of coaches would try to score a touchdown, which no, is No, stupid. no, no, no. He would, th- I think they he would said. Have they would have they said they would have kneed and kicked. Plus, yeah. Sean McVay uh, kicked the field goal on fourth and one from the goal line instead of going for the touchdown, which was mathematically incredibly dumb and right. so they to were, argue they that they the down, rams down three with five minutes to go to argue that the rams would astutely allow them to score a touchdown i think is uh, is a stretch they did not display a situational astuteness in this game in that in that one occasion but uh okay fine it was a bad call <laughs> you know bad calls happen <laughs> that, was put themselves really in situation. that was a really bad call it wasn't just a bad call it was a really bad call it wasn't a great play either i mean i the play was interesting to hear him break down why he PI'd and admittedly PI'd. PI. He PI'd um, because he said that he noticed formation was weird. Wide receiver was in the backfield. He was on the other side of the field and he just ran, he said, 40 yards across the field to cover and got there really late. Didn't have time to turn around and look for the ball. And if he had turned around, he probably would have defended the play legally. Yeah, he got there too late, but also too early. So, Josh, does this question your gets, stated it gets early out there, Mike. your stated dictum that there's too much replay review and it's ruining the game? Yeah, this is exactly what I wanted to get to. So, after the game, many people reported that the NFL is going to take up reviewing uh, pass interference calls, which I think is a bad idea, honestly. Yeah. And I think it's a bad idea for the following reason: I think. 
what people want, including my mother, but uh, also everyone else in New Orleans, including myself, what people want out of this is for a clearly objectively bad decision not to decide the outcome of an incredibly important game. The pass interference was the particular instance here, but it's not the only example of an egregiously bad call that uh, could affect the outcome of the game. There was and one so, in the other championship game, too. And so, not d- d- category error here. We're talking about egregiously <laughs> bad calls. Like, <laughs> yeah. give me my, give me my, spa- give me Fine. space. Okay, give me space. There for has my, never for my been here. a call like this one before. Go ahead. Well, yeah, that's true. Okay, so I think what you're left with then is, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, that what we want is the ability to review everything, literally everything, because ev- any potentially anything could be a bad decision that affects the outcome of a game. And then even at this moment, my, d- my darkest night of the soul, where I feel uh, that football is so much more than a game, gentlemen, it's about this, it's about our, sh- our shared culture and heritage. But now it's like entertainment. And yes. when you review everything, then the game is not entertaining. We saw that yes. at the we saw that at the end of the Patriots Chiefs game, right? On these last drives, it's just reviewing and and these are plays that should have been reviewed by um, you know, that it's not like they did anything wrong in reviewing, but it took fucking forever. Well, that's right. because well, I, I every just... play, every play in a football game is so fast and so complex and there are so many moving parts and so many fucking rules that yes you could review everything on every play and if you say we need to review everything in the last two minutes because it is crucial to the outcome of the game then yeah it's going to do something to bog down the excitement and flow see the nba but also yeah. see the nba but also lead to ram saints outcomes so i think uh i, I agree with your your premise I do think that the uh, end of the AFC Championship game was actually exciting in spite of the many reviews. In fact, it was so tense and exciting that it surmounted the slog that the mandatory review was. But there are other ways. If what we want is to eliminate the egregious injustice, there are ways to address the egregious injustice, like instead of automatic reviews, you know, there are coaches' Mm -hmm. challenges, allow the coaches' challenges to be extended for pass interferences. Why That's not? what they do in Canadian football. Yeah. So what would be wrong if once a game, so that you, by definition, it's only in the most critical circumstance, you allowed one coach's challenge for a normally non-challengeable play. I like this idea, but only if it's a different color challenge flag. So they can have two okay. different color challenge flags. <laughs> you get a red flag and maybe a chartreuse flag, a teal flag, whatever your trendy color might be. But this reminds me of the BCS, where every year they would change the system to fix the new mistake that was occasioned by the unforeseeable circumstance. And maybe that's fine. But like what would happen in your scenario, Mike, is that or in your scenario, Stefan, is that the game deciding call would happen with two minutes and one second Mm -hmm. left on the clock or that the referees, you know, that they made a bad call earlier in the game and you used your one challenge and then you don't have a challenge for the egregious call at the end of the game. It's like it's 
it's always going to be t- trending more towards review because everything, that's how, and that's what we need to fight but against. But that's how society works. I mean, that's that's how well, that's how society's law works. working. Society's working really great right now, isn't it, Stefan? <laughs> yeah. And another and another problem with the pass interference. Then why not the holding penalty? And once you open the door to exactly. the holding penalty, oh. oh my God, does football get terrible? <laughs> terrible. So look, I I have total respect that uh, for you and your stance and how you're sticking to it, even though it's against your narrow self-interest in this moment. I I think you're right. And I do think also there should be, baseball has got it so terrible, but I really do think that there should be an injection of, I don't want to say common sense because common sense is misused, but we could come up with a series of reforms so that the end of a game that every catch isn't scrutinized um, to a fairly well. Isn't the problem, Mike, though, that football is treated the way that the legal system is treated, that there's going to be some more perfect solution to the problems that we have and we try to solve them through legislation or through changes in our laws? And football's the same way. It's like you're striving for some perfect outcome that will anticipate every 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 event in 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 society and we want to make sure that we're covered in some way and i think it's a noble goal for a society but it's probably a really bad goal for a football game i think that it's not exactly the legal system it's more like how laws are passed and once there is an accident at an intersection you retroactively put up the stop sign so you're always trying to correct for the last injustice but we're not taking into account the downside, uh, the fact that it's an entertainment uh, property. And there's this like moralizing or the people who honestly do believe that football is a reflection of society and justice or whatever. They're being dishonest or they're being pigheaded when they say something like, well, we've got to review and we've got to get it right. Please take into account the fact that you're making the game boring. No, we cannot because this is so important. And I think when you weigh both of those things, maybe there's a better solution to allow in some instances that bad pass interference to be called. But I think you're right. Like, you got to live with the bad call. Also, the Saints did win the coin toss for overtime and didn't score. So two, two comments. I think the real dividing line here, if you get down to really the fundamentals, the, the molecules of the situation, is that I think that there are arguments on both sides for should there be a system in place that – if and just absolutely egregiously bad call is made that we just there has to be a system there's an override to to override it to yeah. like press a button and that's what people are talking about a deus ex machina of like a there's a rule in the NFL rule book that Goodell could like <laughs> jump oh yeah let jump, that guy jump let that the, guy be the jump deus onto the, <laughs> exactly <laughs> jump onto the field and like a jetpack and like declare that <laughs> that uh, things need to be overruled but i this is what I fundamentally believe. I feel like if something happens right in front of an official where it's clear to everyone in the world, and I talk to my friends who are in the Dome, and oftentimes in the stadium, you just like can't really tell what's happening. It was and, clear yeah. to everyone in the stadium what had <laughs> happened without even a replay just because right. you have this bird's eye view and you could see mm-hmm. it's you, everyone – in, on TV and the stadium side. The guy was you running cannot, 20 miles an hour across the field directly into the receiver. I just feel like you cannot have a system that accounts for, or you shouldn't have a system that accounts for human error on that scale. It's like if you murder someone in front of a police officer and the police officer says that wasn't murder. It's like is the, is, the, is the solution yeah. to just, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's not a good analogy. <laughs> uh, I just- it's not, it's not strong enough, Josh. <laughs> 
on Fifth Avenue. If I add on yeah. Fifth Avenue, then it's about then it's Tron. Serial killer. Then it's yeah. okay. Then it's okay. A whole it's family. Okay. But if something that egregious happens right in front of the official, then how can you? I, I just don't know how you can bake in to the rules that 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 needs to be accounted for. You just have to on on a certain level. You just have to assume baseline competence. Yeah. And if there is not that baseline competence, then you're just like. Oh well, that guy shouldn't have a job anymore. I guess is the yeah, solution. And I don't, and and I don't have this at the ready, but maybe a Rams apologist would. There's got to be a couple plays where the Saints benefited from big call, and it's not. There were a couple in as huge a situation, but any game that goes to overtime, I mean, by definition, one or two plays change the game. And in the Patriots-Chiefs game, there was a terrible call on Tom Brady getting hit in the head where he actually got raked on the shoulder. And like uh, Gene Steratore said, I understand it's hard to see, but you can't call it if you don't see it, which is almost the opposite. Missing a call is one thing. Making a call that didn't happen is even worse. So there are always these calls like this. As a neutral observer, someone who would have loved both of those teams, I'll tell you who I was actually rooting for. And, and it was I was rooting for any matchup but Pat's Rams. Um, although I would <laughs> I'm gonna watch, and you're, you're invited, <laughs> I'm going to watch the game. But you know, I just think this is the replay of the last three Super Bowls we've had, Pat's against the uh, NFC's best team. But still... I said to myself, that's a bad call, such as happens in football all the time. I'm just going to like go right past the fact that you just called the Rams the NFC's best team for, for some reason and say that the one of the most exciting young team, you know, they are. They are exciting and young. All right. I want to have us like focus on the Patriots for a second. But just one one last thing. Just let me get <laughs> one last look in. The argument that annoys me the most is the one that Mike kind of just sidled up to a little bit, which is the most annoying version of this argument that Mike did not make is the Saints have no one but themselves to blame, which is obviously not true. Um, <laughs> but just the we argument have some Los that Los Angeles based referees to blame the argument that the Saints put themselves in this position, that they had all these opportunities. They got the oh, Stefan, you sidled up I to it as well. Right up to they, it won too, the, yeah. they won the toss in overtime. My counter argument to that is. They're playing an opponent who is also trying to win the game. Yeah. And the standard That is my for standard counter-argument. The, the other guys are trying to. But, but the standard yeah. for victory should not be you in, – in order to be a justifiable winner and not be aggrieved, you need to win by so many points that one of the most egregious, if not the most egregious call in NFL playoff history should not tilt the balance to the other team. Like that is, well, that is not I, a fair standard. It, in a way, you're right, but I liken it to politics and the argument of, you know, it's your fault for making it so close that your opponent can use electoral college and maybe some that other is, chicanery to That win. is the counterargument that you have just articulated. Right. The, the Saints should have gone to Wisconsin. <laughs> That's right. All right, Patriots. The thing I am struggling with as an assigning editor on this day is that, as as you just said, Mike, this is a replay of the last three Super Bowls. Not only that, the Patriots have made more, uh, made a lot more than three Super Bowls. This is eight mm-hmm. for uh, Brady and Belichick, five of the last six. Mike Pesca, what is a new thing to say about the Patriots? 
Well, they're they're not bad. Gonna writing, it's not, I'm going to be right. writing this down so I can assign it because I need right. to it's publish not, something. Isn't it? Nine? It's not like it's not like the Alabama analogy. Okay, this is familiar because Alabama always kills everyone, even when they don't. You know, the Patriots always play exciting games. They've never had a non-exciting Super Bowl. Nine Super Bowls. Stephen's right. Are you not are, right? They actually have when they lost to the Bears by a lot in 80, uh, 86 after the eighty five season. But you know, are we not entertained? I remember the era of horribly unentertaining Super mm-hmm. Bowls. Patriots' presence in a Super Bowl equals entertainment. Oh, I'm going inter- to interrupt you here. I think I don't disagree with this premise at all. I'm not. It's not that I'm not entertained by the Patriots. I'm right. I'm happy to have them there. I just don't know what to say about it. Right. So you're saying you can't, the the anticipation uh, won't be that big. We know we're going to get quality entertainment. So it's sort of like saying True Detective season one was good because we could write all about it. But when a show just constantly delivers and you know it's going to be great, I don't know, like The Good Place, maybe you can't write as much about it. But really, shouldn't the, the actual event be the important thing? Sorry about the assignment editor um, aspect. I guess what you'd have to do is talk about the guys who are different from Belichick and Brady and talk about <laughs> how <laughs> Van Noy <laughs> is the key to the defense. You have to get a little, you got to get a little weedsy about how how Belichick, how he's able to do all this stuff with, with guys who aren't really that good, but, you know, he's able to... Uh, craft totally different game plans for everyone and maybe you ask maybe ask something like why doesn't the rest of the league see it if tony romo knows when tom brady touches his helmet they're running right why doesn't every defense in the nfl know that but i don't understand josh this is the most slate pitchy slate pitch of all time i mean there's nothing to write about that's the story like why do we hate brady and can't conceive of new narratives why is their presence ultimately numbing when in fact we know that the game itself is not going to be some blowout they're not like dynastically they're not the yankees in the 1950s where you knew the outcome was foreordained this is going to be a good game every game almost that they've played in in the super bowl as you pointed out has been a fantastic game and even better when they lose the joy (laughs) that they're losing brings to so many people is so great yeah, you guys don't really understand what it's like to be me. I can that's fine. You don't you don't have to. But what people want to read about in the lead up to the game on a general interest publication like Slate is not yeah. about what a great game it's going to be. It's about Brady, it's about Belichick, it's about why do people hate the Patriots? It's about oh maybe you shouldn't hate the Patriots. Yeah. It's, I can I mean, answer all those questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's all It's pretty clear. You I'll think, of, Mike, something. You'll think of something. The assignment th- is yours, yeah. Mike. So on my on we'll, my notes, we'll need fifteen hundred words by Thursday. <laughs> in my notes, you're right. Here. I mean, the Chiefs and Mahomes, like every problem you're having, it, it's a one eighty if you have the Chiefs in there. Yep. Like you can't yep. write enough <laughs> stories analyzing them. Yeah. So on my notes, I have in all caps. What's the new thing to say about the Patriots? I have one line underneath, which is great offensive line. It's true. They do. Their offensive line played amazing great against the line. the Chargers and do. the Chiefs. But it seems like. Okay, maybe that's an article that no one will read, but our (laughs) offensive line coaching is unbelievably underrated. I got into offensive line Twitter. I think offensive linemen <laughs> are brilliant and they the way so many of them study the defensive uh, tendencies of the guys they're playing are just brilliant and I think we can understand it when a batter talks about a pitcher. Like in sports there's even within a team context mono a mono matchups and I think we understand it in most 
aspects, but no one puts the mental energy to say, okay, you're an offensive lineman. You're playing against uh, maybe a shifting series of defensive linemen. What tactics do you move? What movements do you use? When do you buy his fakes? It's mentally, I think, maybe I'm a former offensive lineman, but mentally, I think it's way underrated. You mean in a previous life? not going to get any traffic off of that, by the way. In a previous life, you were an offensive lineman? Is that what you're saying? No, I was an offensive lineman until I blew out my knee. Can you start a hashtag T-O-T-O-T, Tatat, top offensive tackles on Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) It's also Tommy Laren. She's one of them, weirdly. Um, Let's talk about the overtime system. So, I mean, a lot of of, uh, incredible stuff happened in this game that we haven't talked about. A lot of uh, four four lead Mm -hmm. changes in the fourth quarter. Mahomes. A lot of points in the fourth quarter. Leading them to glory. Brady also leading them to glory. One-handed catch by Chris Hogan, who's not Julian Edelman. No. Uh, Tony Romo. Knew, knew everything that was going on. Um, and then in overtime, the Patriots win the toss thanks to the great Matthew Slater calling heads. The Patriots go down the, the field, score a touchdown. And then, so if we apply the Levine entertainment principle here, the reason to change this rule is that it would obviously be more entertaining if both quarterbacks get the opportunity, maybe just in the playoffs, but get the opportunity mm-hmm. to have the ball in overtime. Do we agree? Oh, completely agree. Totally disagree. Oh, All right. I hate this rule. Football's a team sport. Your team had the ability to do anything but give up a touchdown. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. Mahomes could play, you know, Chuck Bednarik would not be in this position. It's only because football has organized itself as you only play (laughs) offense or you only play defense. The team had a chance. (laughs) If we're going to have sudden death, if you're you're going to say it has to be 15 minutes and then we'll take an assessment or it has to be a half hour, which would be pretty unfair in terms of health and a lot of other reasons. I mean, I, I I think this is a fine, fine system. No, and if system. there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with the system. There's something wrong with the uh, with the Chiefs' defense. No, this is awful. Um, this is an era of, and, and obviously, eras change. Emphasis on offense, defense fluctuates. But I think you need to acknowledge that, and you are always going to be living and playing the sport at a time when one side has an advantage. And yeah, you can say, oh, get a better defense. Um, the Chiefs Mike had their did. opportunity to stop the Patriots. But the rules of the NFL have been created to benefit offenses for the last decade. Um, and they, are, they continue to benefit offenses more than at any time in football history. Giving the ball to Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes to start an overtime period gives them a gigantic advantage. So you are conferring a gigantic advantage on whoever wins a 50-50 coin flip. That seems stupid to me. Mike loves coins. He's a numismatist. That is is true. No, I don't think there's any point where a team has a greater than 50% chance to score. Even look at how many third down and long conversions the Patriots had to make. Good argument, Stefan. I know that, yeah, I know that it happened, so it seems they ordained. <laughs> they, they made the three third down conversions. That's the point. They're you really good. Focus. No, you're just looking you at a sample focus size on results, Stefan. Tiny sample yes. size, sure. Yeah. I, I think that there's never a situation say, wait, where a team Mike. is likely to score a touchdown on a long drive. I may More have said likely. likely not, up to, yeah. I may have said likely. That's not the point. The point is No, no, no. I don't even situation. think you say likely. I, what I'm saying is if it's not the case that a team is a more than 50% chance to score because a de- the defenses are good or at least good enough to get to overtime, I mean, maybe if we were talking about a situation where the NFL was the Big 12 and, you know, the scores are in the 60s, then you'd have to argue for 
uh, the other team has a chance to possess. But on most of the Patriots' drives, even though they did well, they didn't score a touchdown on most drives. Yeah. Most teams, there's never been a team in the NFL that scored a touchdown on most drives. So therefore, until we get to that point, you could have this rule where uh, this is if, also you, if after, you even after, only force after a field goal, you get After 60 minutes of football, the Chiefs' defense was completely gassed. Yeah, call a timeout, like well, Jim Nance sure, said. They should have done that, but... The, the Patriots defense should have had an opportunity to be gassed too. Oh, I really did. Double hmm. gassing. Yeah, I totally disagree. I didn't think there was anything. I didn't think, first of all, I didn't go in and say whoever wins the toss is winning this game until the Patriots won the toss. And then I'm like, oh, they're winning this game. <laughs> right. But I, I didn't they think were, that. They were playing in the game. Yeah. Right, how about this though? If Kansas City had been granted the opportunity to receive the ball after the Patriots scored a touchdown and kicked an extra point and they go down and score a touchdown, think of the drama of, Going for two to win the game right there. Yeah. That would be I, there was a cool. surfeit of drama in this game. This game did not la- lack for drama. Can I make two observations not on the o- o- overtime? Yes. Just two puncturings of sort of uh, things that we've all agreed on. Sure. One, Mahomes, though an exciting and potentially great quarterback, is far too inaccurate to be called a great quarterback. Though he makes spectacular sidearm arm throws, you know, he missed pretty wide open guys that I think... Andrew Luck and Aaron Rodgers and, you know, uh, Matt Ryan and a bunch of quarterbacks. Matt make Ryan. Those wow, that hurts. Yeah. No, I th- I don't. I've never seen Matt Ryan miss uh, guys like in that in the fir- the uh, was it the first quarter play where he took the sack to get out of field goal range. There was an early play in that drive where I think Williams was. I'm going to say wide open or wide enough open and didn't put touch on it. There are a number of throws where he didn't have accuracy or touch. And I don't know if that could be taught or he's young or whatever, but I just want to say that. The other thing is, though I love Tony Romo, I have two observations about him. (laughs) He is brilliant and enthused. And often you get enthused without the... They seem to work in opposite of each other. I don't know why. That's a great point. Like Dick Vitale is so enthused, but he's a dummy. And uh, Mike Mayock is so smart, but he's boring. So Tony Romo has the right amount of no not faux enthusiasm and it makes his uh his makes his brilliance go down better that all said some of the things that he was being brilliant about i think most learned NFL observers would know that you either do a sneak up the middle or a run to the right. And when you check out of the sneak up the middle, you're going to do a run to the right. And the other thing is when Gronk is is in a one-on-one situation with a safety, they're going to throw to Gronk. So I don't know how brilliant that is, but still he's great. I'd I'm, I'm very much looking forward to him doing the Super Bowl. So you think what we're seeing is more norm shattering that the analysts are like, we don't want to spoil what's going to happen. I think that most analysts who know things uh, aren't so emboldened as to make flat-out predictions like he does, though a lot of them could. I think they couch it. But I also think the really smart guys, you just don't want to stick with them. Like the way Mike Mayock will always call something an A-gap and will always talk about the three technique. I mean, even though he makes a lot of right calls, we don't even pay that much attention because he's not bringing the drama with him. Also, maybe as a Thursday night, primarily a Thursday night analyst, they're boring games to begin with. Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. We uh, well, love you, Mike. Editor editor of uh, Upon Further Review. Editor of Upon Further Review. I wrote a thing for the, that. So did the Stephen. greatest yeah. what-ifs in sports history. St- still available on Amazon. Is it coming out in paperback? Yes, it is coming back out in paperback soon with, you ready, a new cover. Oh, collectible. Not really, collectible. Not, really a new, not a totally new cover. We're just highlighting the fact that Stefan wrote a chapter on the cover. I said, can't we just mention some of our contributors on the cover? And they said, yes. Yes. So I'm the only contributor mentioned on the cover? I think maybe Gladwell, Bob Ryan. Malcolm Gladwell? Come on. (laughs) 
<laughs> the guys who move product. Carl Ove can ask hard. Uh, Mike, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Bye, Mike. Thanks, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last week, ESPN's Steve Fainaru and Mark Fainaru Wada reported that from the NFL to rec leagues, football is facing a stark new threat, an evaporating insurance market that is fundamentally altering the economics of the sport. With thousands of concussion-related lawsuits already in process, thousands and more sure to come, insurance carriers don't want to be on the hook for billions in potential payouts connected to traumatic brain injuries. What that means for the future of football, well, that depends on who you ask. The guy we're asking today is Steve Fainaru, one half of the Fainaru Brothers investigative team for ESPN's Outside the Lines. Thanks for coming on the show, Steve. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the most basic of basic questions. How does insurance work in football? So it works in a lot. It's a complicated question. It works in different ways at all levels. So, for example, the the NFL, they have insurance at the league level and they have insurance for the teams. So the NFL needs general liability coverage um, for the league uh, if for lots of different reasons. If somebody... Uh, if there's an event in a stadium or if uh, there's some event that involves the league that would involve uh, potential liability, the league wants to be covered. And so they have that. And what they're facing now is, which they didn't have, the situation wasn't the same before. They now have a situation where they can't get coverage for head trauma uh, because of the litigation that uh, that was settled in, in 2013. The teams, they have to have both general liability and workers' compensation coverage, which is mandatory under state law, because the players are employees. And so what they're facing is there, there's only one insurer in the entire country, Berkeley Entertainment and Sports, that's willing to provide this coverage for neurological injuries. And so Berkeley is insuring the teams the league is uh, facing its own general liability issues and they can't get head trauma coverage right now. This is a long-winded answer just for the league, but you know, when you get down to Pop Warner, Pop Warner needs general liability coverage. They had a problem where their longtime insurer refused to give them coverage um, for head trauma, so they had to go out into the market and look for an alternative, and they found that there was just one carrier that was willing to provide it and would give them this kind of coverage. And the problem is that if there's only one carrier in the market and they have a monopoly over providing insurance to football, whether it's for Pop Warner or for school districts or for the NCAA or for the NFL, rates are just going to be through the roof. It's not going to be affordable for these football entities to pay it and stay in business. Well, it's right? not just rates. It's also exclusions. Sure. They have a lot of power to negotiate the terms uh, to these leagues and entities. That's exactly right. And and that, that's the real issue with the league right now. I mean, the league has so much money that they're always going to be able to 
to figure out their risk management situation. You know, they could self-insure potentially. And some people would argue that that's actually what they're what they're already doing because the deductible on the workers' comp insurance at this point is $1 million per claim. And very few of the claims ever get to that level. And so the teams are paying out, um, you know, they're, ta- they're paying out those claims and Berkeley, the insurer, is not. But when you get down to Pop Warner, it's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's, it's both, right? You, you can't have an exclusion for head trauma in this environment because of all the litigation that's out there. Pop Warner settled a lawsuit in Wisconsin, a CTE lawsuit, which would have been very difficult on the plaintiff side to prove. It revolved around a 25-year-old person who had committed suicide and was later found to have signs of CTE. The family made a claim against Pop Warner and the insurance company, which was a subsidiary of AIG. And the insurers, according to Pop Warner, forced them to sell. And so the, the insurers are, they're afraid of all this. They're like, they're afraid that there's going to be more litigation. They're going to be on the hook for it. And, uh, and so in many instances, they're just, they're just taking a pass. And the ones who are in it are either raising their prices or they're writing all kinds of exclusion into the policies. The NCAA also settled a lawsuit recently, um, raising questions again about how eager it's going to be to, 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 to carve out exclusions and find ways to, to get insurance. Do you feel like the after doing all this reporting and you talked to to dozens of people and you read thousands of pages of documents um, from insurers and leagues and and other entities that that govern football, do you believe that the fear is real that football could be like asbestos in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s? Um, I covered some of that at the beginning of my my career. I mean. Asbestos litigation bankrupted dozens of companies and continues to cost billions of dollars. Obviously, football is a lot smaller industry in terms of the number of people affected. But do you feel that these fears are overblown or are are these entities facing real risks? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I guess I would say I would put it this way. Like the panic is real. We were very surprised at how blunt people were in describing the level of fear in the marketplace among among insurers. And the NFL's own insurance broker, Alex Fairley, told us that if you're football and other contract sports now, the insurance business doesn't want you. Julian Bales, you know, he's, he's both a medical director for Pop Warner and a member of the NFL's head neck and spine committee. And he told us that uh, he believes that insurance is arguably the biggest threat to the sport. Mark and I went to an insurance co- uh, conference in Las Vegas, and uh, there was a panel discussion on this issue. An insurance expert got up and asked a question about how big of a sleeping giant this is, and the moderator came back and you know he began to talk about the millions of potential claims that are out there of people playing contact sports. And the moderator, who was also um, an insurer, responded, the, yeah, it's potentially a free-for-all nightmare. And so the panic is real. I think from my perspective, you know, which is sort of looking at this issue for the last, what, six or seven years, I think the panic at this point is unfounded. I don't think football is asbestos. Asbestos and diseases related to asbestos still kill 15,000, upwards of 15,000 people every year in the United States. 
CTE is a disease that's been diagnosed at this point in 110 former NFL players. The pool of potential victims is much smaller than it is with asbestos. There's even still debate over whether CTE is, is actually a distinct neurodegenerative disease. And so I think it's we're really far from that, but I think the insurers are looking at it. Asbestos costs the insurance industry at this point $100 billion, and I think they're looking at the similarities and they're responding to that. Well, the argument from insurance companies might be something like, there is a small chance that we could suffer catastrophic losses here. And what's the upside, actually? Especially, it you know, the reason that asbestos has affected so many people, as we've all been saying, is that its footprint in this country is enormous. And for all of football's cultural import, it's like there's not that many football entities that one could insure. And so... You know, Berkeley, the group that you mentioned, they've kind of zigged while their places have zagged and they've collected a lot of business from the NFL and they're obviously placing a bet that this is going to be good for them. But this is just not an enormous market. And so I can understand if you're an insurer being like, you know what, let's insure something else. Yeah, I think that's right. It's not, relatively speaking, a huge part of the insurance industry. And when you look at everything else that's being insured, you know, you look at this and you look at potential for litigation and we're already, I think we were really struck. We took a harder look at the litigation that's out there and we were, we were really struck by how much there is at all levels, you know, high schools in particular are getting hit hard. And so if I'm an insurer and I'm looking at this, the upside is not, is really not that great, and yet the potential downside could be astronomical. So I, I understand it. I'm just saying the scope of the problem. I, I don't think at this point that they're comparable. Yeah, not comparable certainly in numbers, Steve, but when you factor in dementia and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and other neurological diseases that former football players have contracted, you well know that they may not be large in number, but they're certainly big in publicity and attention. And given the size of the football industry, which is also smaller, obviously, compared to something like asbestos, they do potentially make up a large percentage of people that have played football that could bring claims. And you quote an insurance executive anonymously saying that, that every one of these kinds of cases are going to be blamed on football. And then when I look at it from the other side, Steve, and I'm curious as to what you heard from school districts and, and municipalities, I can understand, you know, Pop Warner has a financial incentive to keep playing football to keep its business alive, as does the NCAA and as does the NFL, obviously. School districts, though, don't have that financial incentive. Right. And I think that's a, I I think like most things with this, it's the science that's ultimately going to lead where where this goes. It's the insurers having a a huge impact on it, but we're going to find out soon enough how big this problem is. And the, the high schools are public institutions are going to have to take a look at that. And of course, some of them already are. I mean, we focused on a a junior college uh, system in Maricopa County, Arizona, where they eliminated football for four teams, including including a three-time former junior college national champion, 
um, because they looked at the insurance costs and the potential liability and they just decided that it was just too great. It was it was just something they did not want to deal with, particularly with the other financial issues that they were looking at. There's a really fascinating angle in this piece that hadn't occurred to me before. You quote an attorney who said that insurers should use their considerable power, influence, and resources to promote player safety. You also quoted a personal injury lawyer who said that insurers ought to be going out there and insisting that the law is followed, training the coaches, training people to do what is right. Is that just kind of pie in the sky thinking? How much should we expect that the insurers will be going to these organizations and dictating terms specifically around the safety of the game? Well, the reality is, as we pointed this out in the story, it's it's actually already happening. Uh, there are insurers who are involved, particularly at the high school level, level, who are, for example, going out and purchasing uh, neuropsychological testing kits for um, for schools. Um, they are uh, requiring, in some instances, that schools have athletic trainers on the sidelines during games, and this is all about not only player safety, but self-interest. They're trying to reduce the number of claims. I think the insurance companies that are still in the market, they're gonna get more and more heavily involved. I mean, Pop Warner, they told us that they're handing over both their rule book and their concussion management plan to their insurer, Scottsdale. Every year they renew their policy. And that's for Scottsdale's benefit because they wanna be involved and they wanna know sort of what they're doing to reduce the potential for claims. So I think that's already going on, but I don't think that that's ultimately going to satisfy the market. Steve, you you quote Cindy Brochard, who's the woman at Berkeley Insurance, um, one of the last players in the game who's been doing this for 30 years. And she says that football is one of those things where I don't care what state you live in, it's at the core of the community. That's what built this country, these sports and the gathering of people in their communities. So I don't see that it's going away. What motivation would she have to to say something like that, which strikes me as a little bit whistling past the graveyard and a little bit sort of ignorant of the history of sports in American society? Sports do go away. I think that's what she believes. You know, she's she's in the middle of uh, Dallas Cowboy country and uh, where high school football is a huge part of the the culture and the community. And yeah, sports, of course, do go away. But from her perspective, she believes that football is so embedded in the culture that um, it will always be there. You know, we'll see whether that's whether that's actually true. It's going to be playing out, obviously, for decades. From an insurance perspective, I think they look at it like they have their deductibles up to $1 million per claim they're getting premiums from the teams that they're able to invest. They're not paying out a great deal of money in claims yet. And they're also confident that um, it's going to be hard to pin all of this on professional football when the people who play pro football have come up through youth football and, um, and then colleges. And it's, hard to, it's going to be hard to pinpoint exactly where the disease occurs. And so assigning blame or a potential liability for that is going to be difficult. I mean, of course, there's an alternative viewpoint to that. And that's that, you know, the financial apocalypse is coming. And that these cases that you're now beginning to see in California, 
where players who already settled uh, workers' compensation cases are coming back and making new claims for neurological injuries, and in some cases are winning. Some people believe that that is the beginning of a tidal wave of litigation that is on the way and that a company like Berkeley is going to be on the hook for. I mean, you see what's going on in New York Supreme Court now. The, the NFL is still slugging it out with dozens of insurers over who's going to foot the bill for that that concussion settlement. And that's a billion dollars. You know, the guy you, you talked about, the insurance broker who's warning about this coming wave, I mean, he told us that a billion dollars is going to look like nothing compared to what football is facing in the future. And that is a prevalent uh, feeling. It's a not uncommon feeling in the insurance industry right now. Steve Fanaru's story co-written with Mark Fanaru Wada came out on ESPN last week. We'll put a link on our show page. It's really fascinating uh, and you should read it. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Manny Machado, long of the Baltimore Orioles and most recently of the Los Angeles Dodgers, as well as Bryce Harper, perhaps formerly of the Washington Nationals, are two of the most desirable free agents in baseball history. I desire them deeply. They're both just 26 years old. They're both entering the prime of their careers. They're both extremely likely to make the Hall of Fame if they stay healthy. And yet here we are on January 21st. 2019, and these extremely desirable young gentlemen are apparently not desired enough to get signed to a Major League Baseball contract. Joining us now is Ben Lindbergh. He writes for The Ringer. He's the co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast, and he has a new book coming out this spring. It's called The MVP Machine. Pre-order that book, please. Welcome, Ben. Hi. Thanks for the plug, Josh. Uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're welcome. Let's make let's just make this whole segment extremely transparently transactional. Uh, so, Ben, what can you do for me? No, to be clear, Harper and Machado have they have offers on the table, right? Um, right. B- before we get into what might be going on here in a big picture sense, what can you tell us about what the market looks like for them right now? At least based on the reporting that's out there, with the caveat that these are probably agents planting stories and it's not clear what exactly is going on on the inside. And that the news could change by the time you listen to this. Fingers crossed. It seems as if Machado has offers or an offer on the table from the White Sox, either seven years or eight years that's been reported. It seems as if Harper has some sort of offer. He reportedly turned down an offer from the Nationals at the very beginning of the offseason that was supposed to be in the range of $300 million. And evidently he was expecting more than that. It seems like there's still interest on the Nationals part. He's been talking to the Phillies. They've both been talking to the Phillies. A few of the same teams are interested in both of these players. So it seems like maybe whichever one they miss out on, there will suddenly be a a rush to sign the other one. But clearly they're waiting to get the most money they can and and go to the team they want to play for. So it's not as if they are completely frozen out and no one wants them at all. It's just a question of whether they will get nearly as much as was forecasted for them at the start of the winter. 
forecasted for them by whom, I guess, is the question. These are, as Josh pointed out, at 26, these guys are a bargain in some ways at $300 million. This is not Robbie Cano at 31 getting a 10-year contract or Albert Pujols at whatever he was, 30, 31, 32, getting a long contract. I mean, the notion that this is risky seems to be a common one in defending the behavior of front offices that to me feels just counterindicated by reality. Yeah, I think that's true. There is a perception that signing free agents to long-term deals is risky, but that's because free agents who sign long-term deals are typically 30 years old, 31 years old. And when you sign those guys to seven, eight, 10 year deals, then they can pretty often go south toward the end of the contract. These guys are both very much in their primes. And so the aging concern is less acute. I mean, there are nitpicks you can make about both of these players. Harper has been up and down and all over the place. He's been an MVP player. He's been almost a replacement level player. He's coming off a really lousy defensive season. He's had some injury issues in the past. Machado is coming off a career year, but he had a down year a couple seasons ago and of course he made his notorious comments about hustle and not hustling and then walked them back subsequently that seems like less of a concern but there are nitpicks you can make about both these players but they are definitely among the top oh, 15 or so free agents that have hit the market in the past quarter century probably so these are both really appealing players in every way so just because they haven't gotten a contract yet doesn't mean they're not going to get a huge contract at some point down the road. So what are we talking about here, Ben? The situation on the ground, the one fact that we do know with certainty is that over the last couple of years, players have not been getting signed as quickly as they had been before. Also, um, I believe it's the case that the amount of money spent on free agency Um, last year was less than it was the year before. Is that correct? Yeah, the average MLB salary actually decreased. The amount spent on payroll actually decreased. And this is pretty rare. That hasn't happened for a while. And revenues in MLB have continued to climb, even as spending on players and particularly free agents has stagnated. So it's almost two separate issues that may or may not be related. So there's just the free agent-wide, league-wide issue of teams taking forever to sign guys and then signing them for less or at least not more than before. And then there's the Machado and Harper issue. It's not yet clear whether their particular free agencies are emblematic of the trend on a whole. They might be. It's also possible that these are just two big guys. Scott Boris represents Bryce Harper, and he has a history of brinksmanship and taking these negotiations into January or February. He actually said six years ago, I think it is now, it doesn't really matter what time dinner is when you're the steak. One of his many (laughs) confusing (laughs) analogies. Um, But he has a history of that, so it's not yet clear whether these guys are, you know, embodying the the trend as a whole. But we know that there is this trend as a whole where teams are taking a lot longer to sign free agents and then they're not increasing their salaries relative to past years. And I think there are a couple different reasons for that, which I am happy to expound upon. Well, you wrote about this in The Ringer last week. Wait, can I stop you for a second? That analogy has just like really thrown me <laughs> off my game here. There are just like eight different things wrong with that. 
But keep going, keep going, Stefan. You wrote about this in The Ringer last week, Ben. And the one point that I, I, I really had not considered is that you mentioned how baseball revenues, as you just mentioned, are at record levels. They were over $10 billion gross revenue in 2018. And that's not even counting the sale of an online BAM tech to mm-hmm. Disney, which was for, uh, what, $2.6 billion. And the point you make there is that teams, because of this guaranteed money, have less motivation to sign free agents and maybe even free agents like Machado and Harper because their profits are not so tightly correlated to winning and ticket sales than they might right. have been in the past. This is a fascinating thought because it really, I think, will help shape how the Major League Baseball Players Association needs to reconsider what they ask for in the next collective bargaining negotiations, which are scheduled to begin after the 2021 season. Yeah, I think that's the big factor that's driving this is that in the past you had teams, really their revenues and their profits were tied to how good the on-field product was and how excited you could get the fans heading into the season. So you needed to sell tickets and have people come to your games. And the best way to do that was to sign well-known players and just to put a really good team together and win a lot. And that's still important, but it's less important than it was because even before the season starts, teams have a fortune coming to them whether it's from revenue sharing, whether it's from local and national broadcast revenues, many, many millions of dollars coming into the coffers, regardless of whether the team is any good. There's the sale that you mentioned, the spinoff of MLB's digital arm that paid out $50 million to each team last year. And this is just really divorced from their on-field results. And so you still have teams that want players, obviously, and want to win. But when it comes right down to it, teams are content to wait a while because they, you know, their season's going to go on. Their opening day is scheduled. They're going to play when they're scheduled to play and they're going to make plenty of money. And, and that's really even aside from franchise valuations, which are increasing at a really high pace, as always, even for teams that aren't doing particularly well in the field. And so free agents have this decision to make come February or so when it's like, well, I have to sign somewhere or my season's just not going to start. Whereas teams are thinking, well, we're going to do fine regardless of whether we sign this free agent or not. And so ultimately, there's more incentive for the free agent to cave in this face off than there is for the team. And so I think that's why it's taking so long. And that's also why we're seeing just lower dollar amounts. I am going to uh, break up this Fatsis Lindbergh love fest and say that I do not actually find that convincing. You could make the <laughs> you could make the exact counter argument, right? That if teams are profitable before the year starts, if valuations are going up and there's a low risk of losses or failure, wouldn't that in some ways free you? To spend more money, the argument that you're making is premised on the fact that um, the owners don't care about winning, which I think is probably true in some cases, but I would imagine is not true in all cases. And I think the far bigger factor, Ben, if I can plug your book, sure, uh, if that's allowed, I don't know, is is that <laughs> these free agent contracts are not good good deals. I mean, maybe with the exception of guys like Machado and Harper that 
teams are better at developing young talent. They have Mm -hmm. a better and more sophisticated understanding of how the economics of the game make young talent a much bigger priority. And so I think it has less to do with them just being avaricious and more to do with them being intelligent. Which for the players means, bringing this back to the collective bargaining negotiations, means that the imperative has to be to get players' money earlier in their careers than the system currently allows. And that, if anything, is the single most important development in baseball over the last decade plus, that the ability to find talent, which I think Ben has written about in a new book, um, <laughs> has has advanced to the point where the, the sophistication of scouting and metrics and development are such that teams know when players are likely to be at their best value. And that obviously is going to create strain between the owners who want to keep players, who want to continue to keep players under affordable, cheaper contracts earlier in their careers versus the reality that they should be getting paid the max when they're 23, 24, 25, 26, not when they're 34, 35, 36. Yeah, that's definitely part of this too. And you look back at deals that were signed just a few years ago and you say, what were they thinking? They were obviously projecting this player to continue to be as good as he had been, even though he's at the age where players typically get worse. And so now you have almost every front office really is smart, has sophisticated models that they know about aging curves. They know that they're paying for past performance to a certain extent with free agents. And so they just have stopped doing that. They've stopped handing out these deals that, you know, for a 30-year-old and expecting him to play like he did when he was 27 to 29, they know they're going to get worse. That was baked into negotiations in the past, in the 80s, 90s, and and 2000s, that, hey, we're going to have to pay these players when they're older because partly they deserve to be paid. There was almost a sort of pity factor, weirdly enough, I think, that, that, that was understood as part of the dance between agents and ownership. Yeah, it was like you earned it and you put your time in and now you get to cash in. And I think there was less realization that these guys typically did not continue to play at the same level. And as Josh was saying, as I wrote a book about, there are improvements now in how you develop players. So it comes down to a decision. Do you want to pay for the brand name player who's going to cost you millions of dollars? Or do you want to go get this guy off the scrap heap and maybe you can change his swing or maybe you can help him develop a new pitch or throw his best pitch more often and suddenly he's playing at the same level as the more famous guy but you hardly had to pay anything to get him this is really bad for the sport and the relationship between players and management for so many different reasons i mean players are starting to get extremely publicly pissed off like chris bryant talking about two of the best players in the game and they have very little interest in them it's not good evan longoria saying that the players need to stand strong for what we believe we are worth. This is clearly coming to a head. And, uh, you know, one thing that we haven't acknowledged is how bad this is for the sport from a marketing perspective. Just contrasted to the NBA, where the offseason brings fans more excitement and satisfaction these days than the regular season and the playoffs, which is its own problem. But the NBA has really figured out the offseason. You've got July 1st, I mean, we even know what the day is. We got, you've got July 1st, everyone becomes eligible for free agency. The top players sign first, 
And there's all this conjecture about where they're going to go. And then once the top players sign the quote unquote Bryce Harpers of the NBA, which no one would <laughs> ever say. But like once LeBron goes where he goes, then everybody else, the, the lesser players sign wherever, wherever they go. And then you have like months and months and months before the season starts to get excited about the guy's new places, to do promotion around it, to have articles written about it. And here we are right before spring training. Not only is there a huge amount of acrimony between everyone, it's the opportunity cost of the league and the teams and even the players themselves not being able to talk about where they're going to be playing next season. It's like it's ludicrous. I mean, you wouldn't <laughs> right, you wouldn't actually make a gigantic shift in the way your company operates and give yourself like no lead time to prepare for it on any level, not just marketing. I mean, the NBA obviously has some structural differences. It's important. You know, you've got to sign LeBron first to know how to build a team around him. Well, the structural differences are the salary cap and the max salary. I, I, right. They are, obviously. But I mean, like, just as a, as a matter of team building, it's not as imperative to have you know, to have Bryce Harper signed in November so that you can then plan how to build your lineup around sure. him as it is in the NBA. Yeah. And there's been some discussion of instituting some sort of signing period or deadline so that it would be more like other sports they instead of having all of this drag on for months and months and months. Yeah. I mean, you're still going to end up with a, just a dead period of the offseason where nothing's happening one way or another. You could make the case that maybe it's better to have these endless Machado and Harper rumors because at least there's the possibility of something happening, even though nothing actually is. But it is frustrating to see it drag on and on and on. And there's just been so much rhetoric, too, about what teams can afford. And, and that's kind of where it comes back to, I think, owners being a little disingenuous and maybe Josh's more positive interpretation of MLB ownership behavior. I differ a little bit with all this talk about the luxury tax threshold and the penalty that teams have to spend if they go over that. It's sort of a, a soft cap on payroll, but it's really pretty soft. And the penalty is are really slight compared to what you're spending on team budgets overall. And yet you have teams saying, well, we can't go over this budget, even though you know they're making many millions of dollars before they do anything. So the whole thing just does seem to be a bit broken right now. And it's a problem because there is more acrimony than there has been in some time. I mean, generally, everyone has been making money. So mostly no one has really wanted to rock the boat. And that's kind of the big question. How willing will players be to jeopardize this whole system because even though they're maybe making less than they should be making a smaller percentage of the overall pie they're still making lots of money and so that's where you run into the the fan sympathy problem fans often sympathize with ownership because they know how much players are making and they don't know how much owners are making and so you can fixate on this guy who's making 15 million dollars instead of the owner who's probably making more but you just don't know it you can read Ben Lindbergh at The Ringer. You can listen to him on the Effectively Wild podcast, and you can pre-order him wherever fine books are sold. The book is The MVP Machine. What do you What do you need, Stefan? You can also order him because he wrote another book. It's true. With the Sam only, yeah. Miller of ESPN. The only yeah. thing is. The only rule. The only, only rule is it, it has, has to work. work. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Not just fine books. My books, too. Also available for order and pre-order. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? 
1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls, and we're just talking about the current state of free agency in Major League Baseball. Uh, Let's talk about where it began. Catfish Hunter was the first guy to be declared a free agent. That was because he'd signed this deal with the A's and the A's irascible owner, Charlie Charlie Fenley. Fenley. Charlie O. Fenley did not want to pay the taxes on a life insurance annuity that he had given to Hunter. Classic scenario. Don't want to pay the taxes on the life insurance annuity. And so there was a breach of contract claim. It went to the courts and an arbitrator ruled in Hunter's favor and made him a free agent. But not just any arbitrator, Stefan. Mm-hmm. The arbitrator, Peter Seitz. Yep. I knew that. Peter Seitz is the man for afterballs. Peter Seitz is the man that helped change baseball. I mean, he also was the arbitrator, I believe, in the Messersmith case that was the true first free agent case following Hunter. Peter Seitz. What is your Peter Seitz? What is all of our Peter Seitz, really, is the question. But for the moment, what is your Peter Seitz? Well, kickers were awesome, Josh, in the NFL Conference Championship Games. 21 for 21, 12 extra points and nine field goals. And no one was more awesome than Greg Zerline of the Rams. Fuck you. Legatron <laughs> made the two longest field goals of the day, the 48-yarder to send the game into overtime and the 57-yarder to win it. Afterward, Jared Goff praised his kicker. Greg makes a 57-yarder that was good from about 70. He said, Goff wasn't the only one who guesstimated the length of the kick. Zerline's hometown paper, the Lincoln, Nebraska Journal Star, wrote of the Pius X graduate, Zerline kicked the ball so hard it may have been good from 70 yards. An obviously self-hating Chicago Bears Reddit thread was titled, That Zerline Kick Would Have Been Good From 70. Good from 70 is the go-to line for describing long kicks. Why? It's longer than the current NFL record of 64 yards set by Detroit's Matt Prater in 2013. It's a round number, and it makes sense given the scheme of the field. A 57-yard field goal that hits the netting beyond the goalposts does, in fact, travel about 70 yards. Good from 70, though, dates to when the field goal record wasn't even 60 and there wasn't netting beyond the end zone. The earliest mention I was able to find is in a 1964 Newsweek magazine feature about kickers that includes the phrases, getting their kicks, a feat in itself, and five little piggies. One of the featured kickers in the piece is the Hungarian-born Charlie Gogolak, then a junior at Princeton, whose older brother Pete paved the way for soccer-style kickers and was my childhood idol. After the fragile kicker booted three field goals to help beat Dartmouth, Dartmouth's coach Bob Blackman gasped. One of those could have been the all-time longest. It went 45 yards and would have been good from 70. Since then, kicks regularly would have been good from 70. But thanks to technology, we don't need woods anymore to measure field goal distances. Earlier this season, NBC Sunday Night Football rolled out a new feature called SNF Kicks that uses tracking technology to measure ball speed 
apex and max good from distance and also traces the flight of the ball like in golf and baseball. This is cool because data are cool and ball movement data are especially cool, but cool does not always equal useful. While it's neat to know who kicks the ball the hardest, I don't think special teams coordinators are going to be signing place kickers based on ball speed. And while apex will be useful data for punters, and NBC says that is coming, a high ball doesn't make a kicker stand out. Ooh, he kicks a high extra point. Ooh. That does look cool. It does look all right, though, yeah. I asked retired Chargers kicker Nate Kading about this. For starters, Nate said, and I can confirm, that kickers are taught to strike every ball the same way. Trying to crush a ball can throw off mechanics and screw up a kick. Nate makes the analogy that kickers often make, which is that it's a lot like a golf swing. You don't want to change it up that much. So when NBC said in a press release that it would use its field goal tracer only for kicks of 45 yards plus because this is the distance at which kickers typically put more power behind their kicks, making the maximum length measurement more applicable, this was largely misleading. I would put a little extra into some longer kicks, but I would say 95% of my PATs, my point after touchdowns, would have been good from 50-plus yards, Nate said. But are there psychological and technical differences on super long attempts like Zerline's 57-yarder? Yeah, on those kicks, kickers try not to get too far underneath the ball, too far being like an eighth or a quarter of an inch to avoid what Nate called useless trajectory that might indeed reduce distance slightly. So you kick it with slightly more of a line drive. And Nate said adrenaline is pumping on long ones, which if channeled the right way, can lead to a perfect strike that does lead to a longer ball. More important than theoretical max distance on long kicks, Nate said, is ball flight and rotation. A good long kick will have a controlled draw, Nate said, right to left for a right-footed kicker, and it'll have a slow, wobbly rotation as opposed to a fast, spinny one. Nate said Zerline's game winner was a classic, perfect strike, slow rotation, lovely draw. Why? Maybe less pressure than on the one to tie the game. Maybe the awareness that at 57 yards, he had to swing freely. He absolutely pured that kick, and it would undoubtedly, Nate said, have been in from 70-plus. Unfortunately— From 70-plus. 70-plus. You slow-rolled that. (laughs) I did. Unfortunately, the game was on Fox, so we don't know for sure how long Zerline's kick would have flown, and we didn't get a flight tracer analysis. CBS has the Super Bowl. Steal this technology now, CBS. You have two weeks. Get to work. Josh, what's your Peter Seitz? According to former NFL tight end and coach Mike Tice's Wikipedia page, during Mike's time with Seattle, his teammates referred to his eating style as Mike Tice's lunch out in a humorous parody of the then popular video game Mike Tyson's Punch Out. I think the chances that this is true are minimal, but I choose to share it anyway because, well, do I really need a reason? Stop it with your demands. Uh, but back to Mike Tice, who announced a year ago that he was retiring from the NFL because, quote, players no longer want to be coached. If Tice has, in fact, left the league, he'll say goodbye with a 32-33 and 33 career record as a head coach, with all of those games coming with the Minnesota Vikings from 2001 to 2005. He's uh, more recently been an assistant, uh, an offensive line coach for the Raiders. During that uh, tenure with the Vikings as a head coach, that period included a moment in which members of the team, but not Tice himself, were involved in the Vikings sex boat scandal 
which for those who are not familiar with the precise details, I'll just say you can get a decent sense of what it was about based on the phrase Vikings sex boat. Tice was also fined $100,000 in 2005 for scalping Super Bowl tickets. In March of that year, Sports Illustrated's Tim Layden wrote a story about it in which he quoted a longtime broker who said, if you were involved in the ticket business, you knew that Mike Tice was a ticket scalper who did not have any discretion. Tice started reselling tickets for a markup when he was an assistant, and as SI reported, he kept it up when he got the head coaching gig. According to Sports Illustrated, Tice organized the reselling of Super Bowl tickets for players and for club employees. This is quoting from that uh, laden piece. Each NFL player had the right at that point, and still does, to buy two Super Bowl tickets at face value. That year, they were $500 face or $600, depending on the location. And those who gave their tickets to Tice received $1,900, a markup of at least $1,300 per ticket. So it said, that's good coaching. The best detail from this story, and I believe this was from a Don Banks and George Dorman SI piece. SI like really covered the field with the Mike Tice uh, scalping scandal. In the 2003 season, Tice berated one Vikings veteran for asking teammates if he could buy their tickets, which he had hoped to procure for family members. The player said Tice accused him of trying to, quote, backdoor the head coach. Tice then successfully pressured some players to renege on their commitment and sell their tickets through him, the player said, even though Tice was offering slightly less money per ticket. Tice did ultimately admit to scalping tickets, though I don't think he admitted to everything in the SIPs. He just basically said, yeah, I screwed up. It was bad. I was wrong. The obvious lesson here, though, is that back then players were willing to be coached by Mike Tice to give them their tickets so he could earn a profit. The other obvious lesson is that the NFL does not want its players and head coaches getting caught scalping Super Bowl tickets. Although USA Today quoted a broker in 2018 who said that about 80% of the tickets he had for sale came from players and coaches and their agents. So who is allowed to make a profit off Super Bowl tickets? Naturally, the answer is NFL owners. According to another USA Today story, team owners and their clubs are allowed to sell the tickets above face value as long as they include the marked up tickets to travel companies and ticket vendors packaged as part of a sponsorship deal. That makes sense. Not really. In 2015, Pro Football Talk's Mike Florio wrote about a rumor that 6,500 owner-controlled tickets with a face value of 1,800 each were sold for 4,800 each. Those numbers equate to a profit of $19.5 million. That is enough to pay Mike Tice's $100,000 fine 195 times over, which is a retirement present that I doubt Tice's pals in the league's owner's boxes will give him, although it's perhaps slightly more likely that that will happen than that Jim Nance will utter the phrase Vikings sex boat during the Super Bowl on CBS. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was the great Dan Bloom, who is sitting in for Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.